Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy-O's? Hi, my name is Shane Terrio, and you are listening to The Riff Raff. Music, stories, and insights from the front line. Although he grew up in a small town just south of London, England, spend some time hanging out with John Cleary and you will swear he must be the result of some sort of super engineering experiment that sought to combine the absolute best of New Orleans funk soul lineage into one person. It's in his DNA. From the way he plays to the subtle ways it permeates his native English accent. In addition to being a pianist and a guitarist of impeccable taste and feel, he's also a really gifted vocalist. Cleary, who has eight solo records to date, recently won a Grammy last year for a record called Go-Go Juice, which I had the pleasure of working on, being a part of. He was also a member of Bonnie Raitt's band for 10 years. I think she once referred to him as the ninth wonder of the world. John frequently plays at the world-famous Maple Leaf Bar, a place that he's had a connection with since the early 80s. He also tours all over the world with his band, uh, The Absolute Monster Gentleman. In this interview, we discuss piano, guitar styles, his early years, and his passion with finally making it to New Orleans, a place he really wanted to live. And you'll hear about the struggles and everything getting over here from England. We talk about James Booker. He's got some great stories about that legendary New Orleans pianist, uh, Bonnie Raitt. And uh, what makes the New Orleans sound unique to other styles? Much, much more. We do a good bit of playing in this one, too. And this interview took place on a pretty hot day on June 2nd, 2017, at John's house and studio in New Orleans. And, uh, yeah, I'm just walking up to John's place now. He lives in a really funky old hardware store converted to his house with a studio and pretty amazing place. He's got R&B memorabilia everywhere and records and guitars. I'm opening the door and I can hear piano, so I guess I'm in the right spot. And I hope you enjoy this one. All right, I'm sitting here in New Orleans with John Cleary. In the heat. In, in the heat. heat. Love in the it. Humidity. Purging uh, <laughs> all our uh, germs and things with the sweat. June 1st, man, it feels like August. Well, we've been lucky. We actually had a spring this year in New Orleans. It's been really nice. And the, the um, air conditions normally at this stage in the year would have been on for a month already, but they've yeah. been on for a week. <laughs> So we had three weeks grace, but now it's coming on fast. Well, look, thanks for uh, doing this short notice. I know oh, I just hit pleasure. you up at like midnight or something. And, <laughs> yeah. Hey, by the way, can I come by? But, uh, you know, I've been thinking about trying to get you on. And since we have a working relationship of some sorts over the years. Yeah. And, man, always loved your playing. and you know, well, Feeling is mutual there. You know that. Oh, thanks, John. <laughs> I remember the first time I met you, it just came to me. It was in Australia. Was it really? Byron Bay Blues Fest. Were you there with the Neville brothers? I was with the Neville's. I was walking around with Nick Daniels. Oh, I remember that. Willie Green. I remember that, yeah. We were walking the street, and you pulled up in a car, 
and just got out. And <laughs> he's like, John. And, and that's where, yeah. That I was, do remember that, yeah. I, I think I was as surprised as you. I was like, hang about. It's like some, some cats from New Orleans. Yeah, exactly. Causing yeah. trouble walking around. Looking yeah, like at a time when you didn't really see many New Orleans musicians in Australia. Man, I wish the listeners could see your place because I came here, I don't know, I don't know how long you had been here at that point. I came over here one day and you were here with Tony Bronigo and I think Eric Burden was here. Yeah. And you were, you had just put the studio That's together. That's right, I remember you coming around, yeah. Well, it's a work in progress really, but it's a funky old hardware store from the late 19th century. Pretty crude construction as they all were back in those days. They used to basically tamp down the the swamp and then put oyster shells wow. down and tamp them down and they would pour concrete squares on top of that and then they would build a, a timber framed house it's quite big um, the walls of these old houses are made out of barge board that's mm -hmm. the board that they used to, to make barges from that floated goods down the Mississippi River uh, in the days before steam travel and so a lot of the houses here in New Orleans, close to the river, are built out of old boats. Um, but it's right on the ground. It's been raining for four days, so it's very <laughs> humid, very musty smell. I love it. Yeah. Feels good. It's the Feels like home. Yeah. yeah. So it's funky. It's very funky. It's funky. But it, this was a hardware store, right? And wasn't it boarded up for like 50 years or something? I think it closed in the 1950s. Um, my old neighbors can remember coming here when they were kids. Yeah. And there was an old man that uh, sat and he was surrounded by piles and piles. Apparently it was complete chaos. <laughs> Nothing much has changed. <laughs> but we still have a lot of the old shelves and drawers and store furniture that got left here. So uh, um, it's a, it's, It suits you, man. It's got a vibe. You know? I seem to live in, I always live in stores. Before this, I lived in an old grocery store. So from a grocery store to a hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fine. Yeah, it's got a lot of character. It's yeah, funky. Sure few hundred yards from the Mississippi River, it's a part of town called the Ninth Ward, old part of New Orleans. Um, Fats Domino used to live a few blocks over the other side of the canal. A lot of good musicians came from this part of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know you as a a great pianist, you know, which you are. You sound like you're born and raised in New Orleans, man. But you you're also a great guitar player too, and I want to focus on that later. Mm. You know, a lot of people don't realize you started out on guitar. I started playing guitar really little, yeah, because all the grown-ups in my family played guitar. And that's what I thought you did when you were a grown-up. So I'm like, well, kids, you want to grow up as quickly as possible. So it's like, show me how to do it. I want to do that. And my hands are too little to get around the neck, but they would show me. They were, you know, they were very encouraging. I had lots of good teachers. I had three uncles that were musicians, and my dad played, and three grandparents that were musicians. So it was a very ob obvious thing to do, you know. But guitar, really. And then um, my mum's passion is still old New Orleans jazz. And she's where that influence in the family comes from. She was a teenager in the 50s when uh, a wave of young English musicians were first able to get hold of old New Orleans 78s. So there were bands, um, guys like Chris Barber. Yeah. yeah. Um, people that she used to go and see. And um, so... I always was familiar with New Orleans jazz, but it was New Orleans piano that at some point just set all my light bulbs flashing brightly. And that's, uh, we had a piano, my grandma's old piano in the house. And so it was that, you know, the riff. That's yep. what I really I dug. And I was hearing it on different records without realizing, without making the New Orleans Association. And I think I just was naturally hardwired for playing New Orleans funk. Because that, 
I dug the hell out of it before I even knew it came from New Orleans. But that that whole you know. Which in New Orleans we call funk. Papa do or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. All those songs. Man. Yeah, in New Orleans that's called funk. Funk yeah. elsewhere means Sly Stone or Bootsy Collins or George Clinton. Right, right. Funk is in New Orleans. Funk is it's it's, it's an the, attitude to playing. The straight mixed with the swing. Almost. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, exactly. And mm -hmm. um, you know that that graceful thing with the guitar chords and with the human voice and the saxophones with reeds and and brass instruments, you can bend notes. The human voice. But what's great with the piano is that you have this challenge, you can't bend the string, so you have to, mm -hmm. to get inventive with mixing up the minor thirds and the major thirds. And I love all that with the sustain pedal, and you let those notes ring, so usually with a, with a lot of instruments you have one note at a time, and you transition from a minor third to a major third, and you do that thing of creating that ambiguity. With a piano, you got all, you got all that mysterious, yeah. sexy, mysterious. It's like a monster crawling out of the swamp. <laughs> I love all that shit. So. Yeah. So that when I figured, when I first got a little taste of that, then the guitar was on the side. It's yeah, been really on the side ever since. Certain things don't translate well, you know. I mean, you could, I could play those notes on the guitar, and it would maybe it wouldn't sound as it, it would just wouldn't come across the same. It wouldn't translate the same. No, every instrument um, is suited to uh, or demands a unique approach, and um, a guitar certainly is a perfect vehicle for playing the same trick but doing it in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know. So um, it's nice to be able to play both of them, but I just made a conscious decision to put the guitar on the side for a little while. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you move from a guitar to a piano, you suddenly it's like being led out of a garden into, the, into an enormous field to go and romp in because you've got this huge... Big, 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 big noise that you can make. And, you know... From there to there and what's so hip for me is because I always dug percussion I was like and piano is a percussion instrument and the New Orleans stuff especially really plays with the percussive aspect because you get all that great funky with all the chords mm -hmm. and you get these nice big mm -hmm. arpeggios you can play but it's the syncopated funk thing that, that, it's a whole uh, orchestra there yeah and of course Professor Longhair and Jelly Roll Morton maybe we can demonstrate something I don't know yeah. just off the top of my head if I, if I play something Thank you. 
things you're playing it what makes that new orleans to you i mean you know little things like uh these little cliches like you were doing um you know those little piano rolls and, and these yeah. things that's like sort of a new orleans thing <laughs> you know yeah. those kind of things that yeah um you know there's a lot of these things exist in places other than new orleans and of course with millions of people uh beavering away with the same instruments the same four beats in a bar, the same 12 notes for the last 100 years on the same instruments. It's very rarely that you'll they ever do, find one thing that exists in like a vacuum. You know, everything's influenced by everything else. It does there, really sound New Orleans. There are certain things. I think there's... The way, the way you play those... Yeah. Those little trills. Those. The way you slur the notes. Is that a Booker or a Fest thing? Or? All of them, really. I mean, it probably goes back to guys that weren't even ever recorded that we know. You know we just yeah. know the names, guys yeah. like Tony Jackson, you know. But but there are lots of elements that make um, New Orleans music New Orleans. But, you know, at the same token, there are people who never thought like that and didn't really care one way or the other, didn't try and play New Orleans. Um, they just happened to be from here and they heard a lot of the same influences. And so they come up doing something that they do. And then, you know, when you look back over the period of several decades, you can see, well, that guy actually contributed something new. He wasn't trying to sound like New Orleans. Mm. And the, um, all the great piano players that we know about in the last hundred years who were recorded, you know, um, often would be quite dismissive of what had gone before. They didn't really care that much. I mean, they would have seen old guys when they were coming up. That's all they had access to, because this is in the days before YouTube and the internet. Sure. And yeah. Even before records, you know, going back away. So you know that Professor Longhair used to paint on a little false moustache and go and see Toots Washington when he was underage. <laughs> um, I don't suppose that Professor Longhair could have even named a Jelly Roll Morton tune if you asked him. And I'm sure that James Booker admired Fest because he was one of the old cats when he was coming up and he could emulate Fest in the same as Anna Toussaint could but they didn't really I don't suppose he owned any Professor Longhair records if he saw Fest he would be happy to see him but you know I think in a way I've got this kind of European idolatry of all these guys which is great and when you live here of course you take it for granted too but the point is that it's not uh an academic experiment the way this music involves, uh, mm. has evolved and musicians from here generally don't really care no it's they just want to go out and play the music and they heard a bunch of old guys good. when they were coming yeah. up and that's kind of influenced them but they like what, what's on the radio and um they just do what they do it's not an academic thing it's a it's oh, music in new orleans is part of the social glue sort of osmosis to yeah people and funk is the ethnic folk music of New Orleans. The way you break down the four beats of a bar and the way you play with the blue notes and the way you break the rules. That's something that they invented here. It's only because it was so good that it got exported all around the world that it's familiar and to, to many people. Most people don't realize this is funk and jazz. This is the ethnic folk music of New Orleans same way as throat singing is the ethnic folk music of the Tuvans. And mm -hmm. I say, someone's up to knock your business Someone's out there doing the Business. Mm -hmm. 
it's just so, it's just that here and where we are now is so good that it got exported and embraced first of all in St. Louis and New York and Chicago, and then it got exported to Europe and all over the world. First with New Orleans jazz and then with rhythm and blues. Well, that's what mm. everyone else calls rock and roll. They just call it rhythm and blues here. Yeah. So um, Earl Palmer took those grooves and brought them to L.A. and made them sort of mainstream yeah. radio back in the 50s. Yeah, and, yeah. and here in New Orleans, Cosmo Studio with Little Richard, Leal and all those guys. So there are certain things that are particularly New Orleans-y. Uh, but the funny thing is New Orleans is always a horn town and a, and a drummer's town and a piano town. Um, and it wasn't really a place that's associated with guitar players in the same way as you associate Texas with right, those guitarists yeah, they, or they Mississippi really or like yeah, Chicago right. or whatever. But even the, new, the guitar players from New Orleans, to my mind, always played like piano players. Whether uh -huh. it's, I mean, Lonnie Johnson was the first guy to bend strings. He was from New Orleans. I used to play with Snooks Eaglin. He played. Yeah, he was great. Man. He played a lot of stuff like a piano player. Walter Washington would voice chords like a piano player. Yeah. Even Earl King used to do that, that sort of the, the minor third and the major, the suspended thing. That sounded like a, it was like that. Um, Yeah. yeah, those little those little things like Leo Nocentelli would do some those little sus mm -hmm. things, you know, that's sort of New Orleans y kind of you wouldn't think that, but I've never heard anybody else do those sort of things. Yeah. I mean Cornell Dupree is a, a guitar player that sort of sounds he's from Texas. Kind of mm -hmm. sounds like some Louisiana thing. You know, it's like you said, it's all mm -hmm. the same thing. But the reason I brought it up is because there's definite sort of cliches that show up in even today, even with the modern bands that come out of New Orleans, you hear with Shorty or Troy, Trouble yeah. Shorty, or whatever, you'll hear some of the, those little things. When you started out playing guitar, mm -hmm. I know we spent a lot of time talking about piano, but I want to talk about when we were doing your record, Go-Go Juice, there was a tune called Boneyard, mm -hmm. and you sent me the demos, and it had yeah. this really happening uh, guitar part intro, which I copped. Mm -hmm. I think I did it in a wrong position i don't know but it ended up working with what you did i think if i'm remembering correctly and i said man where did you get this ribbon you said your uncle what did yeah your that's uncle, uncle john's riff yeah i don't know yeah. I, can't, I can't can you play it I want to sure because i don't remember it <laughs> i'd have to i remember him playing this he lived in new orleans when i was a little kid and, used, and this just to um send me um send letters and stuff and then when he left new orleans he couldn't bear the thought of going straight back to england so he went to to Ireland and when he got to Ireland he headed all the way to the south of Ireland and then got on a ferry and went to a little island off the coast of Ireland called Shirkin and, and which at the time was uh, a popular place for the new sort of hippie generation that were, were rediscovering their Celtic roots so they're playing traditional Irish stuff and so he had a real passion for for Irish music and then when I was a little kid he would show me stuff and to me, this riff was always like a sort of a Celtic I version of a Professor Longhair riff. Yeah, okay. That's what it kind of sounded like. It sounded like a, like a, a bit like an Irish jig or a reel. But uh, the, at the same time, it was funky in the same way as, you know, yeah. it was funky. And so I would just watch him play and I would just memorize, just watch his fingers he plays. listened to that this morning on the way over here so I could sort of refresh and it sounds like you maybe kept the part I did with your part when you mixed the record and there's a third guitar and that's him wow he played on it too yeah, he I was didn't over, know that. he came over to you he oh, was visiting you and said hey come check this out how cool is that and I said you want, I want you to play on it so he it wasn't, it wasn't the guitar that was comfortable to him but I blended the three of them so it's you me and him playing oh, that riff together oh that's Before I 
make it to the boneyard, I'm gonna have some fun. Before I make it to the boneyard, I'm gonna get some loving on. No, I'm nothing but skull and bones. Gonna get on my like a rolling stone. Before I make it to the boneyard, I'm gonna have my fun. Oh, nah, ain't ready for the boneyard. Ain't ready for the boneyard. But I want to talk about because um, man, we could spend way more time talking about history. It's like so it'll just not it'll be nonstop. But I want to focus on some maybe some stories if you could, because <laughs> I know you were at the Maple Leaf with, during the Booker times. I mean, is there like a cool story you could share? Like a, um, I think I've probably forgotten most of them because it was so <laughs> long ago. But it seemed like there was a story every day with Booker. I mean, it's a, it's a shame, really, because the anecdotal stuff about Booker is always kind of sad because he was a pretty messed up character, really. But it's something that's often quite funny as well. Though. I was there the night back then. The big, the biggest band on the, the bar scene in New Orleans was the Radiators, and they would play every once in a like once a month. They would play at the Maple Leaf, and uh, that was a time in the early eighties when New Orleans was a real boomtown. Oil money was flying everywhere, and the bars there'd be a sort of sense of anticipation on Saturday afternoon as they were getting ready for the big night because they knew the place would be packed and it would go on till like six or seven or eight o'clock the following morning so the big thing was to stock as many beers in the cooler as they could possibly fit and so it was a military operation they'd clean everything out they'd get all the ice they'd get all the beers everything would be stocked up and they'd cover it all with a layer of ice and just as they would get just as it completed I was sitting at the bar and book up next to Booker and he just suddenly went, Ugh. oh, <laughs> and he threw up in the ice. Oh, Booker so was a was a terrible junkie, and he was throwing throwing up. But he threw up in the ice box, and they had to take everything out and do it all over again. Oh my god! That's... I remember that one. He used to he used to stay upstairs, and I had a job painting the bar, and he would come out, and I'd be up there on the balcony with a, on a on a step ladder with a gallon of paint. The deal. My deal at the Maple Leaf, the, the, the owner of the bar gave me a job, and the deal was I could, I got free drink while I worked. Me and my mate, we were like 17 years old, fresh off the boat from England, free drink while we worked. We could work whatever <laughs> hours like we wanted. Drive through yeah, scheme, yeah, and we got half price drink at any other time. We got to see all the bands free. While you so we'd make up our own hours. So we'd start work at three in the afternoon when the hangovers were abating, and we'd go in and get make our own cocktails behind the bar. So I'd be on a ladder with a gallon of paint, a big spliff, a bag of crisps, um, a Dixie beer, ban or balancing it, holding, trying to paint at the same time with the radio, listening to early OZ. And then the door would open, it was Booker trying to come out of the apartment, and he'd always be cursed, get that fucking ladder out of the way. So I'd have to come down with all this stuff, move it just so Booker could get out and come back in again. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Let me ask you this. Mm. What you know? For those of you listening, James Booker he, he's famous for wearing this. He's iconic character with the with the star patch. You know, I've heard from people we know, like very legendary New Orleans musicians, differing stories and accounts of what how he got the patch and what was the reason. I've heard Ringo Starr, which is mm -hmm. you know his bodyguards kicked him. He owed money. I've heard uh, what else? Uh, CIA. You know, I so. wish I knew. I never asked him, and I wish I had asked him. Uh, I don't think anybody knows, and everybody's got a different story. Yeah. Everybody's got a different story. I know he had two eyes once, and he disappeared, and he went on bender for a couple of weeks, <laughs> and by the time he resurfaced, he had one eye, and no one knows what happened in the meantime, how that happened. So who knows? And he was a gay, black, one-eyed... Uh, junky madman who was schizophrenic i'd see him some days and he'd be really chatty and friendly because i was in there all the time and he'd be in there all the time because he got free drink too so he'd be in there hanging out just playing the piano while i was painting outside so i saw mm -hmm. him all the time and sometimes he'd be friendly other times just like he'd never mm -hmm. seen you before yeah you never knew what you were going to get really and his shows were very erratic he played every tuesday and i saw him every tuesday for a couple of years so I must have seen a hundred James Booker gigs, and sometimes it was brilliant. Other, I can remember other times walking up and thinking, "Oh, guys, Booker again. Let's go somewhere else." 
<laughs> it sounds amazing to say that, but it, no, it was I very mean, you hear that. You inconsistent. Hear... Depends on what cocktails of just exactly heroin and, yeah. and um, Crown Seven were going through. Altered states, and they're, they're yeah. The genius gets suppressed, or sometimes it maybe enhances it. Unfortunately, well, if it was if the cocktails were right, if the combination of, of everything was right, then it would enhance it. And it was it was like a performance enhancing drug. You would do this superhuman stuff, this elevated to levels of inspiration. You'd play stuff that was amazing. But yeah, the heroin, I think, for him was a performance enhancing drug when it when it worked. It was the other way around when it wasn't working, or if you caught him an hour too late or an hour too soon. Yeah, Mac told me that he had one time, he said, yeah, I had Booker and James Black in my band at the same time. He goes, oh, God, that was a headache. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said, I walked in the room one day and James is with his midget in the room and all kinds of crazy stuff that I can't repeat. You started out, you, you became a, a session musician in London, is that right? You no. were doing, or was that later? Or was that ever? <laughs> no, was never. I never really was as much of a session <laughs> musician in England, really. Come, I left England after, uh, after as soon as I was old enough to get out of school. I got out of school when I was seventeen and got a um, a job as a labourer on a construction site carrying sheetrock up and down. Wow, six flights That's of stairs. That's a lot more interesting. I just I know you from here, so I know the story yeah. of the maple leaf and painting and yeah. All well, that I did. I yeah. saved up. My the idea was to get to New Orleans as quick as possible. I was broke, so I so I got a job. My grandma got me a job for six months on the building site, and I failed completely at saving any money. <laughs> my grandma got me a job with her next door neighbour, who was the foreman of a construction site in London, and there was a job going for anybody stupid enough to get up at the crack of dawn and spend an entire day carrying sheetrock, two two sheets of sheetrock at a time, up and down six flights yeah, of stairs, day in and day out for six months. <laughs> I did that. Serious work. I did that. And, um, and I suppose that the idea was to save the money to come to New Orleans. I didn't save hardly anything. And when I, but I did come to New Orleans. But I arrived with about $100. Wow. And... It could so easily have gone so horribly wrong, but everything went right, and I was really lucky. And uh, I was relying on the kindness of strangers, and um, I just landed by my f on my feet. It was a combination of luck and uh, and the good people of New Orleans, who I think looked at me and thought, who is this idiot? What does he think he's doing? I mean, I didn't know anybody. I mean, I knew the, the name of a girl that worked behind the bar at the Maple Leaf because she was a distant association of someone from England. So I went straight to the Maple Leaf and, um, and was offered somewhere to stay and got a, job at the, got, got a job at the bar and got to see all the bands for free and got to see James Booker every Tuesday night. Mm. And then occasionally when Booker didn't show up, they'd get me up on the piano because they learned that I could play a couple of tunes. And, um, and um, I was in heaven. So that was it. I never went back. Well, I did go back at one point because I got kicked out of the country. I was staying my visa. <laughs> um, and then I made my way back in surreptitiously by hook or by crook. And, um, but that was over a third of a century ago. So I've been here a long time uh -huh. now. Yeah, man. You're yeah, part of the, so. the fiber of this city for sure. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's, I knew I'm very lucky. And I, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I mean, I really knew what I wanted to do, and uh, and I was very lucky that I was able to do it, and I'm still here enjoying it. You ain't got to beg to steal all my road, my love. You ain't got to beg to steal all my road, my. started putting your own band together right at some some point you started working with walter wolfman right well i was always the world i, I was just desperate to play i really wanted to play I and mean, that's the reason i came to new orleans was for the music and i was going out hearing amazing music every night and when i look back it was i mean it, i appreciated it because i was coming from england and from a little village in the countryside you know 
uh, on my first night in New Orleans, the night I arrived, I saw El King playing. Mm. The following afternoon, I saw Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee playing at Jed's across the street in the afternoon. I mean, I saw amazing music from the get-go. But I was no good at hustling, really. And I don't like, generally, I don't like it when people come and ask if they can sit in or sit mm -hmm. in and play. You know, you've got to pay your dues and mm -hmm. wait for the right moment. And so the house I moved into had an old upright piano. I was really interested in the piano at that point. I wanted to find out where Mac Rebernack got all his amazing phrases and feel, where he got his ideas from. Mm -hmm. And so it was ironic that, because um, he, he was my entree into New Orleans piano player, I'd heard him as a sideman on records and loved what he did. Mm-hmm. I spent the first part of my career trying to sound exactly like Dr. John the piano. I spent the last half desperately trying to not to sound like him. <laughs> A lot of, of people respect. never get to the second half. Out of, out of respect for him, yeah. you know. But um, so I got to shed on the piano every night when I went home and I got to listen to a lot of music. And I spent two years basically just listening and playing for hours at home. And I got a few opportunities here and there to play. But one night when Booker didn't show up, they got me up to play piano, so that was my first piano gig. And then I had to leave the country, and then when I, when I left, I went back to England. I didn't want to go, but I had to. Um, and at that point, I, my hustle factor kicked up into high gear. And, um, and so I put a band together in London and went around all the pubs and hustled gigs. And uh, I was just full to the brim of, of New Orleans adrenaline enthusiasm. I was just 100% New Orleans. And I just was, you know, I didn't want to be in, in England particularly. I, didn't, I would have just stayed in New Orleans if I could, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I put together bands from the best musicians I could find, guys who were like 20 years older than me, mostly. And there weren't very many. There were some good players. They're really good players. Not many people that are particularly familiar with the New Orleans thing. So it was always a an approximation and I did that for about a year and a half playing around all the pubs and learning how to plug in a PA system and how to put a band together how to hustle a gig how to get paid at the end of the night um, and I made a living from doing that and I played every night I had gigs every night and it got my chops up and I uh, started writing and you know, I did a few little sessions here and there, but not very much. I was still a kid. I was still about you know, 21, 22. And I came back to New Orleans. I just decided that was I was going back. And at that point, I started hustling in New Orleans. Oh. So I got Professor Longhair's old gig at, at Tipitina's on Monday nights. Hmm. I got Booker's old gig at the Maple Leaf. He had died while I while was back in England. And... Um, I got Archibald's old gig at the Absinthe Bar wow. in the daytime. And I started getting hired to play with um, <clears throat> Sam McLean and then Walter Washington. And then I was in Johnny Adams' bar. I got hired to play behind Johnny Adams. And then Earl King and Snooks Eaglin. Wow, man. And, um, Legends. And then. Tommy Ridgely and all these names that probably don't mean much to a lot of people, but if you're an aficionado of New Orleans R&B, they're enormous, mm -hmm. you know, enormously important. Irving right. Charles and Smokey Johnson, that was my band at one point. The Fat the, the wow. Domino's Rhythm Section. I'm doing gigs with George Porter from The Meters and having Red Tyler on saxophone, David Lasty. And, you know, all the old R&B guys were still alive and they all needed gigs. And I was one of the few cats that actually knew all the solos on the original records. So Earl King would hire me because I knew how to play the mm. piano the solo, parts, yeah. the Huey Piano Smith kind of stuff, and Touch Washington stuff. And so, so I was just, a, and that's what I did. I had to keep my head under the radar because I wasn't really supposed to be in New Orleans. You're sort of, it's a similar when you're talking, I'm listening to, because I asked Mac one time, I was like, how did you find yourself in the favorable position to be in Los Angeles in the late 60s, you know, right in the middle of the wrecking crew. And he's like, I got paroled there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to go. It just happened. He didn't want to go. But, yeah. you know, it's sort of the same thing with you. You got you had to go back to England, but it was, it was yeah. an advantage because you got really... It like, worked, you, yes. You got recharged. Yeah, in retrospect, it was a good thing, really. And so, you know, that's what I did for years. I'm mean, very under the radar here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and New Orleans is not what I would consider. I mean, having lived in L.A. and Nashville and these music towns, New Orleans is a music city, but it's not really a hustle business town. I, no, I would, it's, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. <laughs> like you really don't get anything accomplished. When no you try business to gets done here at all, yeah. no. Um, but it was a great place to learn how to play music that has a certain personality and a certain attitude, and every note is imbued with that. can learn a lot of stuff from records but uh, I think to play New Orleans music right you have to live in New Orleans for a very very long time mm -hmm. I don't think you have to be born in New Orleans mm -hmm. and ironically a lot of the musicians that are associated with New Orleans weren't actually born in New Orleans mm -hmm. it's like Lee Allen and Lee Dorsey Professor Longhead was born in Bogalusa mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a long way away from New Orleans <laughs> but you've got to spend your formative years here mm -hmm. and that inf that informs your your approach to playing and i think the music of new orleans is um a, rep a musical representation of so many things that make this city distinctive from the food to the wrought iron balconies and the french quarter to the humidity and the climate Historically, the sort of the very laissez-faire attitude that existed here, this being a Caribbean port city and a Catholic city, importantly, where for a lot of people, their interpretation of Catholicism for them was um, permission from upon high to go and get up to all sorts of nefarious mischief yeah. as long as you went to church on <laughs> Sunday. So a lot of people go, you know, they used to say in New Orleans that every corner was either a saloon bar or a church. Yeah. And that people would crawl from one to the other yeah. on Sunday mornings for absolution, and they'd be, and they'd got a clear check to go and do it all again the next week. Oh yeah, it's clean, you can do it all <laughs> yeah. over again. And there was that thing, and I mean, I, I could talk all day about New Orleans. I have a, a love yeah. affair of New Orleans. That's it's chaos. It's good. It's it's a dysfunctional city, and with the as someone told me on my first day, I said this place has the best politicians money can buy. Yeah. <laughs> I, in another way, it's, I've heard oh New York and New Orleans the only two places I've ever like I've been there and I couldn't wait to leave but then once I'm gone I can't wait to go back oh, as soon yeah. as I'm on the plane it's like oh, I'm ready to go back yeah, yeah yeah. I remember the Neville brothers they wouldn't even take when we were in Australia or we'd be in Europe or whatever they would never Art and Aaron Neville would never take their watch off of New Orleans time <laughs> <It was Really? laughs> like, never tour yeah. manager would be like what are you guys yeah. doing like you know yeah. we're six hours ahead we're eight 13 hours yeah. you. nope it's, it's six o'clock in new orleans like wow that's commitment man but that's what makes this city as you're saying you know people well it's a blessing if you can live in this in this lovely little city and then but still get out on a regular basis because it is provincial it's a great place to live for me yeah. You also got out of here on a tour with, or a long relationship with Bonnie Raitt, and that enabled you to get out of the New Orleans touring thing. Well, the first, still... yeah, the first, well, the first tour I ever did in Texas with Walter, what was, well, little tours around Southwest Louisiana and Texas and Mississippi with Johnny Adams and Sam McLean, the blues guys, you know, playing these little black clubs. And then, um, <clears throat> and then I got, um, an offer to work with Taj Mahal. So that was my first time in Los Angeles uh, in a studio making a record. And through Taj, I met Bonnie Raitt. And then I joined, after a couple of years with Taj, I joined Bonnie's band. Now, how did you get that? You, you knew them through your Taj I was on a connection. session. I was doing a recording session with Taj. Taj wanted to do a couple of my songs that the producer, John Porter, had played in. And this time I was sort of in exile in London. And I got a call saying, Taj really digs these songs. It's okay if he does them on the record. And it's like, are you kidding me? He's one of my favorites. I've loved Taj yeah. since I was about 10 years sure. old. 
love Taj Mahal. And um, then I got a call saying, he wants you to come play on the record. And I said, well, I'd love to, but I can't because I need a visa for that. Oh, and they said, well, let's see what we can do. And they hooked me up with a visa wow. for two weeks to come in and work on a Taj record. So I did the Taj record and Bonnie was a guest on the record. And um, I talked with Taj and I met Bonnie again when I was playing with Taj on the blues cruise. She came in, did a, sat in with us. She flew and we were docked in St. Croix, the festival. So she came and played Bonnie and Charles Brown and Taj's band. So I met her then. And then I met her again when I was on a gig with B.B. King in L.A. And at that point she said, hey, look, I need a piano player. You want to come join my band? I said, so I said, no, because <laughs> I couldn't. I just got a record deal, wow. my first record deal. I was making my first record. And I was in the middle of it. I said, boy, I'd, I'd kill to come and join your band, but I've, you know, I've got a, yeah, not, I have a, an obligation to make this record. Reason, sure. And so I said I couldn't do it. And I was, you know, I just was honest. I couldn't do it. I, mm -hmm. I had to make a record. And the record company got wind of it and they called me up and said, you idiot, call her back immediately and say you'll do it. And we'll get the record made some kind of way. But... So I rang her up and said, is the job still open? She said, yeah, okay. So I, that's how I joined Bonnie's band. Bad mistake, a crying shame, get caught when a damn blue game. Bad mistake is a crying shame, get caught when a damn blue game. I thought it was through some, uh, well, Hutch used to live here in the 80s, right? Hutch Hutch is in the bass player. I used to see Hutch playing with the Neville Brothers, but I never right. knew him. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know, know if you guys no. knew each other back then. No. Yeah. And um, and you mentioned John Porter. John's a, I know he's a dear friend of yours, and he became a friend of mine and my wife, and I miss the guy. He moved back to England. But John Porter's a, a musician from England who became a producer out of frustration on recording sessions when no one seemed to really be taking charge or getting the record made. So by default, he ended up becoming a record producer. And I met him uh, at a party when he was living in Los Angeles. And uh, we hit it off. And um, we've been good friends ever since, over 20 years now. But he's produced all of my records. Oh, yeah. Yep. And um, yeah, he's, he's marvelous. Good player, a really good record producer. I love working with John. I mean, we, you and I worked together on a few things with him producing, uh, quite a few things. But I remember the Ricky Lee Jones one. <laughs> Everybody remembers that one. <laughs> well, that was fun. But um, yeah, we did a, we did Tommy Malone, I think, yeah, yeah, and a few Tommy other projects. Yeah, yeah. I, I love being in the studio with you because you're very creative. I mean, you have the the New Orleans feel but you know harmonically how to shape things and craft it towards a singer-songwriter that might not necessarily be vintage New Orleans R&B or, or what have you. Yeah, well, I think if you, you know, I think it's good to, I mean, it's funny, I speak with an English accent, despite the fact I've lived here for so long, but I play piano with a New Orleans accent. You know, if you like making records and you aspire to, to working as a session musician, you need to learn more. You need to have a few uh, tricks up your sleeve, mm -hmm. you know. So it's good to be able to to um, play in different styles, and and you do that anyway. You know, you always you can't just play New Orleans piano. You have to play other styles in order to play New Orleans piano. Right. You have to have understanding of how uh, how it's all put together, what the laws of music are. Maybe we could just play something, or sure. I don't know. Let's see.
I love playing with you because you've been from New Orleans. You know how to play guitar with with, the, with piano players. So when I used to play in Mac's band, that was the, I think the way he dug too. Being a, um, it's hard, you know you got to be able to play. New Orleans is not R&B is not associated with, with guitars as we said earlier on, but there's definitely a right way and a wrong way of playing guitar with New Orleans R&B, and it's great to hear some, you know someone from New Orleans. Oh doing man, it right. I just try to stay out of the way. I, uh well, it's the funk. It's getting the <laughs> funk right. Let me ask you this, John. You're because you were there. You know, when you go to jazz fest, you see people wearing T-shirts. They have James Booker. They have Fess. You know, it's Fess heads and everything. You know, meters. Like we know, like the, that was. Do you think that was the peak of New Orleans music, or I mean, do you think what? Do you, what's your opinion now versus then? I mean, I don't want to ruminate on the past, but you're you're one of the few guys that are like continuing to do in my opinion, fresh things with the New Orleans sound, you know, rather than just play the same yeah, I don't like the retro thing. I think we're in danger sometimes now that all the old catalogs are available. Um, anything that's ever been recorded, you, you can find in seconds on YouTube now. And um, in a way, it's unfair because I think new musicians, young musicians are now competing with other musicians ever recorded in the last hundred years. Yeah, I never um, thought of that. And there's mm-hmm. only... 12 notes there's only four beats unless you want to start getting really out uh, most people most listeners don't like that they want to have something they can digest so you're you know you're, paying, you're a working musician you're selling your tickets to your gigs and selling records so you've got to do stuff that people want to want to do um, without resorting to kind of novelty and when you're just dealing with the music you know, if you're gonna, it's important you do something new, but it's it's increasingly difficult. Um, and everything is derivative. I don't think I'd be interested in a piece of music that wasn't derivative of something. I think yeah. music is a linear, has a linear evolution. There's tradition, very important. Mm-hmm. It's very important in New Orleans. Um, as, as to the status of music in New Orleans right now, it's impossible to say. I think in 50 years you could look back and and you say, wow, that was a real golden era. I do think I probably am like most people. I think I'm my vessel isn't big enough to fully appreciate everything, all the beauty of all, you know, of everything that's around while it's around with nostalgic rose tinted spectacles. You can look back and see, you can see all this amazing stuff that, that I was surrounded by when I was a teenager here in New Orleans. I could go, I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan used to play in the bar across the street. And if I could be bothered to walk a hundred yards, I could go over and see him playing for five dollars to about 10 people. There's amazing music. Clifton Chenier will play regularly. Um, amazing stuff. And I knew it was amazing, but it was, reality was, it was normal. That was normal here mm-hmm. in New Orleans then. And you, you assimilate and you recalibrate and you adjust. And so that was normal. Uh, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it's an enormous, mostly big deal when I describe it to people and when I look back. It seems now that all those people, now that all those people are gone, that whole generation of New Orleans musicians are not around anymore. And so I really miss them. I miss Jesse Hill and Ernie Cader. And I miss Red Tyler and Earl Palmer. Um, and I could go on and on and on for hours naming all the names of the people that used to be around that weren't a big deal. They were playing in little clubs around town. Mm-hmm. I don't know that um, taste in music are such, or that music business is such, that um, the young people coming up in the black culture of New Orleans able to produce music in the kind of context that, that really, uh, a little petri dish for that stuff half a century ago. The bar rooms aren't around anymore. The bar scene isn't around. It's dangerous in New Orleans. Um, ironically, bounce music is... Uh, it came out of New Orleans, and most people who are New Orleans music lovers probably don't even know what bounce is. <laughs> Wouldn't particularly like it, yeah. but it's actually arguably probably sold more records than any of New Orleans jazz or New Orleans rhythm and blues probably did in the so. last century. Yeah, 
Um, right, right, I never thought but of as that. far as like a contemporary New Orleans sound, a lot of musicians here now you find it awesome. They're from other el elsewhere. They moved to New Orleans because they love it. Yeah, and they'll have some New Orleans. They'll, they've done some homework, learned some New Orleans stuff. But a lot of the bands that are playing here, to my mind, don't really sound very New Orleansy necessarily. Not really, no reason why they should. But uh, there was a New Orleans sound in the fifties, and there was a New Orleans sound when I got here. I think I got here at the tail end of it, really. But you know, it's New Orleans, man. It's always people come. People that are born here are funky by disposition because it's in the genes. Mm -hmm. People that move here uh, are funky by choice. A lot of people come to New Orleans and don't like it, and then they leave and they don't want to come back. And that's cool. A lot of other people get off the plane and go, "Oh boy." And that's how I was. To me, New Orleans was like putting on an old comfortable Either jacket. Either you don't. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it wears off yeah. after a while, but it, it's always in your blood. People you know? that come here and stay are the ones that like the food, they like the music, they like the attitude, the, the way of life. Mm -hmm. And so that's what makes New Orleans unique in the United States. And so there'll always be music here. There'll always be good music, uh, good time music. Mm -hmm. And you know, music is the soundtrack to your social life. <laughs> Amen. Yes, thank you so much again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Always yeah. great to play together. I look forward to hearing your new record, man. The, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be funky. All right. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John. It's a lot of fun to do. If this is the first time you've listened to Riff Raff, I really appreciate it and welcome. Thanks for stopping by. If you've made it this far, uh, I really definitely appreciate it. I have a lot of other episodes up. If you haven't noticed, I've, um, let's see, there's Will Lee, Warren Martini, Weasel Zappa, John Schofield, Mike Stern, some other New Orleans greats, Johnny Vidakovich, George Porter Jr. from The Meters, and I'm working on a bunch of them. I'm doing this right now while I'm on tour with Holland Oats editing, and it takes a lot of work, so only thing I ask is if you, you'll go and uh, leave me a good review on iTunes if you like it. It helps it move up in the, uh, the charts there, and I love hearing comments about it. Don't ask for any money. It's just a little joy to do this. I would like to say, though, I do have a new solo record out. If you like the New Orleans sound, it's called Still Motion. It's a bunch of different trios with uh, myself and Jim Keltner and John Vodakovich, James Singleton, Kirk Covington, some other great players. Check it out if you like it. I appreciate it. Take care. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.